0: Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is the Cunning of Geist podcast, episode 14. Welcome back. This episode will focus on a very important Hegelian concept, and not just Hegelian, but an important concept in its own right, freedom. It is a very big topic. The word gets tossed around a lot, and I'm going to talk specifically about Hegel's important contribution to this notion of freedom. To kick things off, in thinking of freedom, I'm reminded of a song back in the 60s, actually it was released in 1971, um, called Me and Bobby McGee. It was the number one hit by Janis Joplin, and as I said, it was released in 1971, actually after her tragic death. And uh, it was a big hit, and there's one verse in there that stands out to me when talking about freedom. And you probably know it. it um, the verse is Freedom's just another word for nothing else to lose. Nothing don't mean nothing if it ain't free. Again, that's a very interesting line. Let me repeat it. Freedom's just another word for nothing else to lose. Nothing don't mean nothing if it ain't free. So I'll return to the meaning of this and what it has to do with Hegel in a second. But let me talk a little bit m- more about freedom first. Um, freedom is, is of course, uh, of central importance in Hegel's philosophy. Um, also in his notion of the cunning of Geist, the movement in history. Uh, he sees it as a driving central force in history. And to show just how much importance Hegel places on, on this, uh, let me provide two quotes from his um, philosophy of history. First is, mind is free, and to actualize this, its essence, to achieve this excellence, is the endeavor of the world mind in world history. And by world mind, he's referring to Geist. Hegel sees spirit, Geist, mind, and freedom as similar concepts. Also from the philosophy of history, the second quote I want to provide goes like this. The nature of spirit may be understood by a glance at its direct opposite, matter. The essence of matter is gravity. The essence of spirit, its substance, is freedom. It is immediately plausible to everyone that, among other properties, spirit also possesses freedom. But philosophy teaches us that all the properties of spirit exist only through freedom. All are but means of attaining freedom. All seek and produce this and this alone. So from these quotes, you can see that freedom is at the absolute core of Hegelian philosophy. We also saw how important freedom was in the development of self-consciousness in the master-slave dialectic, or as it's also known, the lordship and bondage dialectic from two episodes ago. How a self-consciousness needs recognition by another of its freedom in order to be free itself. Uh, And we also saw, very interestingly in that dialectic, that um, one has to be willing to risk their life for this freedom. That's essential. Hegel states in the Phenomenology of Spirit, uh, on page 114 of the Miller Translation, for those of you in the Hegel study group, and I quote, It is only through the staking of one's life that freedom is won. Only thus it is proved for self-consciousness. Its essential being is not just being, not the immediate form in which it appears, not its submergence in the expanse of life, but rather that there is nothing present in it which could not be regarded as a vanishing moment, that it is only being for self. The individual who has not risked his life may well be recognized as a person, but he has not attained the truth of this recognition as an independent self-consciousness. Thus, as we discussed previously, we have a bloody march of history on our hands and this is a battle for freedom and recognition and this brings us back to the bobby mcgee lyrics freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose and that means that um, freedom also includes uh, risking your life to obtain the freedom now want to focus a little bit on the notion of time we've talked about time before um, in detail in episode eight But time is also an essential element in discussing freedom, Hegel's freedom. And here I'm referring to historical time, not natural time, and I'll explain the difference in a minute. Only humans have the ability to sense historical time, that is, past, present, future. Animals have desires, but they don't have a conception of past, present, and future. They have no conception of their eventual death. They react by instinct alone. And what Hegel shows and what's true is that historical time is essential for freedom. In fact, this is why Hegel calls time the empirically existing concept itself. And by concept here, he means the idea, the concept of concepts, that is, of rational thinking humans. Time provides the empirically existing reality of this freedom. Uh, And it's a little bit complicated, but um, it's so core to Hegel's philosophy, he actually says it twice in The Phenomenology of Spirit. He says it in the preface, and then again in Chapter 8, that time is, in fact, the empirically existing concept itself. As a matter of fact, Alexander Kojev, who we discussed in the last episode, felt that um, Hegel's identifying time with the concept was one of the greatest discoveries in all of philosophy. Uh, He said this in his um, famous book, The Introduction to the Reading of Hegel. He believed this put Hegel on the same exalted philosophical plane as Plato, Aristotle, and Kant. Uh, I like to refer to them in my own terms as the Mount Rushmore of, um, of the philosophers. So what Hegel is saying is that without historical time, there can be no freedom. Humans need the ability to choose between alternatives, to have choices in terms of what they do now that will impact the freedom, uh, the future. This is what freedom is. And only humans have this. Only humans enjoy this historical time and the freedom it bestows. Um, Matter does not enjoy this freedom. Um, Matter, as we know, is not free. Uh, a rock being dropped from your hand to the ground cannot choose whether to go down or up or how fast to go down. It has to obey natural laws. Now, things do break down on a subatomic basis, as we'll cover in a few minutes, but let's just stick with the, the world we see and touch. Material things follow material laws. Um, animals, on the other hand, they're driven by both instinct and material laws. In higher animals, these instincts are quite developed. Um, you know, Dogs and cats, our pets, they can include some very sophisticated emotions. And we, of course, share um, our, our materiality and um, a lot of our emotions with the animals. And that's why we can relate with them and love them so much. However, your dog or your cat cannot lay out possibilities of, of the situation and make an educated choice the way humans can. Only we can do that. This is our rationality at play. And we need time. We need freedom in order to do this. Conscious freedom is essential to this choice. And it's only historical time that allows this choice to be made. Freedom requires that a future be envisioned with possibility. Possibility for a different outcome. Possibility for improvement. Possibility for a better way. This is what Hegel's true infinity is all about. And we did a whole episode on Hegel's true infinity in episode four true infinity is the ability to see beyond the given finite nature of things and envision a better future and to act on it Uh, and this is the true reality Uh, uh, this is what gives something um, true being for itself being in it for itself we have this gift we have this ability and this is what makes hegel's philosophy so powerful and unique that he shows how and why this is so Now, a little bit more on time. There there are two levels of time. Uh, One is natural time, time in nature, the time that began 14 billion years ago with the Big Bang. And then you have historical time. Uh, Sometime in our past, um, humans became self-conscious thinking beings. And as a result, historical time took hold and history began and all that that entails. So, You have two times, natural and historical. What's the difference? Well, it's pretty easy to see. In natural time, everything is determined. Um, Natural time can be viewed in an Einsteinian sense as as space-time, block space-time. You know, Einstein did call our perception of time a stubbornly persistent illusion. The problem is there's no freedom in block space-time. Time is just another dimension, and um, everything's laid out, past, present, and future, in one block. There's no freedom there. Uh, we may think that there's freedom, but Einstein says, ah, no, that's just a, that's an illusion. However, Hegel is offering a different look at this whole thing. Um, he, he equates historical time with freedom, and it's what separates us from the animals is this consciousness of time and the freedom that it bestows on us. Um, And as I said, only we have this freedom. And also, it's it's important because with this freedom comes our thinking, and our thinking, our rationality requires freedom of movement. It requires time. It's one and the same concept. Uh, You know, the science of logic, Hegel's Science of Logic, the book sitting on your bookshelf is not thought. It's just sitting there, it exists in block space-time. However, when you read it and when you go through and follow the thoughts and think on your own, then you're, you have movement. Um, and historical time is identical with thinking, with the concept of concepts, um, uh, the idea. Time moves. Um, human beings um, move in time in historical time through their thought process and the freedom that it provides them. So... This is important, and the reason I'm discussing it, and we will continue to discuss it, is that we seem to have two paradigms operating today in the world. Uh, The first is that everything is determined, that is scientific determinism, there's just blocks, space-time, and that's it. And on the other hand, we have Hegel's account of freedom, which we all have an inner freedom, we all can find true infinity, true spirituality, within the finite given, and act upon it. So this is a big issue, and as we've covered in many episodes, um, we seem to be firmly entrenched in this materialistic paradigm. Um, I keep reading how neurologists discover one more thing in the brain and how this actually explains this emotion or this explains something else. I've even read that some scientists claim to have found some firing of neurons that precedes by a couple of seconds uh, our decision that we think we've made a decision, a free choice, that in fact we haven't, that that decision has been predetermined somehow by some neurons firing in our brain, and that we just believe that we have made a decision. Well, that's the materialistic view, and and Hegel and um, those that follow his uh, logic say That's not the case, that freedom is real. Um, As you know, as we've covered, Hegel taught that logic mind is ontologically prior to nature and that spirit, geist, is the driving force of history. So, which is correct? Well, we reviewed in detail Hegel's project in light of modern science in episode two, so I won't go through all the key points that I made there. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, you may want to go back and catch up on it because I, I really cover the reasons that we should be believing in, in Hegel's Hegel's reality here. But uh, I do want to return to one of the concepts that we touched on last episode and go into it in a little more detail here because I think it'll explain this freedom versus predeterminism. And it regards panpsychism, which we did a whole episode last time on it and and, and that is the belief that there is some degree of consciousness that exists in a primitive form in matter. It's an attempt to show that mind did not emerge from matter. It's not an epiphenomenon of matter, um, but there it was there in some form, in some primitive form, from the beginning. Um, we also, in that episode, looked at the strange world of quantum physics and the fact that there may be some elementary f- freedom going on, being expressed. And the collapse of the wave function into an individual particle. So let's talk about this a little bit, bit more. One thing, it, the first thing we need to make clear is that the wave function is actually just a probability curve, it's a bell shaped curve. If you ever took a probability and statistics course in college, uh, you, you know what a, what a bell shaped curve looks like. Um, it, it tells you the various probabilities that, that, that something will occur. For example, if you were to guess how tall I am, um, and you wanted to make the best guess, you could consult the bell-shaped curve for height among males to make an educated guess, and um, th- that would be your best guess—the um, the middle of the, the highest point on that bell-shaped curve—and um, that's really what the probability, um, the wave, the probability wave in quantum physics is saying. Um, it's saying that um, there's a, a, a probability of a particle being at a certain point at a, uh, in, in space. Um, it doesn't say it's there, but it says in some places that there's a higher probability, and in other places there's, there's a lower probability. So it's just a probability distribution. However, there's a big difference. The You could walk in, if you met me, you could measure me and say how tall I am and then you would know where I fell on that bell shaped curve. Am I right in the middle or am I very tall? I'd be on the right or if I'm very short, I'd be on the left. However, your measurement did not change how tall I am. I was that tall before you measured me. However, the probability wave in in quantum physics is much different. Um, It uh, it doesn't exist in, in a particular space before it is measured. It, it only exists as a probability. So that's a, that's a huge difference in the probability of how tall I am versus the probability of a particle being in, in one place. It's the actual measurement, when you go in and try to look at where that particle is, that actually then collapses and one particle will be in one position. Um, And it's not in that place before the measurement. It's not predetermined. There's no way to tell how it, it came to be that the particle is in that one place. We just measure and we find out where it is. And this is a major anomaly in the current scientific paradigm. And this is what I was getting at in the last episode when I said some panpsychists say that these particles may have a certain life of consciousness they seem to have a certain freedom of choice from within the wave function again. There are many alternatives, many different probabilities, some high, some low. And when, it, when measured, one of them is selected. So what's really going on there? Is the particle choosing their position when measured? Well, perhaps. and But there's one other key factor here. At the other end of the measurement, there's a conscious observer. So it, it sort of goes hand in hand. Um, the, the particle collapses, and there's a measurement or observation. Now, experiments have shown that the measurement um, is enough to collapse the the probability wave, even if no one is there at the time watching the measurement. In other words, the measurement can be taken, the wave collapses, and somebody comes three days later and looks at what the measurement was, and they say, okay, we didn't have to be here. The actual measurement, some machine measured it at the time, and that collapsed it. However, interesting question here. Is it possible that the measurement itself does not fully collapse the wave function until the conscious observer observes the measurement? So perhaps it still exists in a quantum probability wave even after measured until somebody actually looks at the we're just pushing out further the collapse of the, the wave. This may be the case. Now, this obviously gets very complicated um, in terms of when the actual collapse happens, but it's something that we can't necessarily rule out. And and again, we don't have the answers for this. This is an anomaly, so I'm just pointing out one of the possibilities. Now, a bit more on randomness. Um, This is a confusing topic. Some people say, well, The the quantum wave collapse, it's not a choice, it's just a random outcome. It's like flipping a coin or throwing a dice. Who knows where it's going to land? And this, this quantum physics is just the same thing. Well, it's actually quite different from macro physics, quantum physics is. A dice throw actually follows the rules of physics, macro physics. If you could measure the exact force of the throw, the height from the ground, the weight of the die, and the surface on which it lands, you could theoretically predict the side it comes up on. Uh, It's all deterministic. Um, Interesting story on this with respect to roulette. You know, the spinning of the ball on the roulette wheel and it lands on one number. That's purely random, right? Not so. Mathematician Claude Shannon He's also known as the father of information theory. And mathematician Ed Thorpe, back in the 1960s, actually developed a program to predict the roulette wheel outcome with greater-than-chance accuracy. They worked in Shannon's basement with roulette wheels and, and um, scientific instruments. And this is really incredible. They, they developed a, um, an algorithm to predict with, with greater-than-random um, chance where the ball would actually fall. Uh, they they did it by um, timing when the ball leaves the circumference of the roulette wheel and starts to fall and then where precisely the wheel was at that time and that could give them a better than chance probability in terms of what set of numbers it's going to come up and they actually then programmed this into a computer and it was a small computer in fact it's now believed to be the first pocket computer ever made. And they took this, they hid it in their pants pocket, and they went to Las Vegas, and they actually beat the house and, and were banned from, from, um, from doing this in Las Vegas. Very fascinating story. So like the roulette wheel ball, the dice throw is deterministic. And if you knew, if you could measure um, everything, you could predict the outcome. Even Einstein and other scientists believe that there's no such thing as pure chance in in nature. Um, Einstein famously said, God does not play dice with the universe. Um, Our common understanding says where the roulette bell falls or where the dice falls is random, um, but it's not so. And Shannon and Thorpe demonstrated this. It's always fully determined, even if we can't fully model it. Now, nothing happens by random in the universe. Everything is either predetermined somehow or there's been some freedom of choice, some actual freedom that's going on to, to shape outcomes. And the wave function collapse, like human freedom, is not deterministic. Um, this is what scientists are wrestling with. This is what frustrated Einstein. He never accepted that quantum physics was the whole answer. and. To me, possibility is the key thing here. Possibility implies freedom. If there are different possible outcomes, different possible futures, and you have the ability to select one of those outcomes to lead you to a different future, that is freedom. We are thinking conscious creatures who see possibilities before us and have the ability to freely choose a path forward from those options. We are not deterministic robots. And it's my mission here to keep hammering on this, because I I think it's so important for how um, we view ourselves, how to develop a philosophy of life, and and to recognize the inherent freedom and and, uh, value in in every human being. So this is, um, as I said, a a big anomaly in, in quantum physics. As a matter of fact, they've come up with 16 different scientific theories about how this could be explained. And one of the more popular ones is called the many worlds interpretation that, in fact, when the, when, the, when the wave is measured, all possible outcomes become real in different universes. In other words, the universe splits into many different universes, and they all contain one of those outcomes. So when we see an outcome, we've actually just been split into one of the many universes, and we're just seeing one outcome, but actually they all exist in different universes. That's pretty far out, but as I said, there are a lot of unanswered questions. But one thing is that this may be um, this panpsychic approach may be the possible scientific outcome, and we should keep an open mind to this. There's another important point here, and I think I mentioned it last episode that, of course, there are different levels of freedom. It doesn't mean that the um, an electron is uh, a conscious human being like we are, um, and, and has self consciousness to the degree that we are? Uh, uh, no, it it may it may be in some interaction with us. You know who knows, uh, but certainly, and in, in most panpsychists, um, and I'll, there are different takes on panpsychism. They they believe that there is a primitive level of of consciousness in in matter. It's certainly not fully developed as a as a human self consciousness. So there may be a link. Um, to rationality somehow some way we just have to see and um, freedom as I've said right at the beginning is at the root of Hegel's philosophy and um, quantum physics may be telling us that uh, it may exist at that level too so in summary we make conscious choices from alternatives uh, we need historical time to implement conscious choices. Human beings are free acting historical individuals. We look to the future, we see possibilities, we act, and we create our own future. You know, freedom is a popular term that turns up in many pop music songs. Um, it seems to have happened a lot in the 1960s. I mentioned me and Bobby McGee. And interesting story, you may have heard of the um, singer Richie Havens. Um, he was the opening act at Woodstock, the famous Woodstock concert. And it, uh, interesting story. He, he was the first act, and many of the artists had not arrived yet who were supposed to follow him because of all the traffic jams and all the mess that was going on. So he actually ran out of material on the stage. And for, for an encore, he improvised the song Freedom which he became famous for. It was from an old folk song called Motherless Child, but he just basically improvised it on the spot at Woodstock. Well, that particular song got into the movie, and it it made Richie Havens um, famous for the time, turned his career around. And interesting story, I saw him live in a concert a few years after that, not too many years after that. And after he performed his big hit freedom. Someone in the crowd stood up and yelled, we want freedom. And it was fascinating. He quickly responded, you are free. Very interesting response. So thank you for coming to this episode. Thank you for listening. This has been The Cunning of Geist, episode 14. This is Gregory Novak. See you next time.